think about empowerment in the U.S. I say to my employees, I'm an American, and I say, I want you to be empowered. I want you to be able to do uh, what you think is right. I want you to be an owner. I want you to uh, do that job as if this is your company. And I think, well, that's great. You know, that's the Western way of doing things. But that doesn't fly as well in China at first because people think it's odd. You know, I mentioned before about the hierarchy, the Confucianist hierarchy. Why is my boss asking me to do things that maybe he should do or some other manager should do? Welcome to Work Matters, where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. I am your host, Thomas Bertels. Today, we talk to Dr. Frank Gallo about leadership in China. Frank is an executive coach, consultant, and author who has lived in China for over 20 years. He has written several books, including Business Leadership in China and The Enlightened Leader. In our conversation with Frank, we discuss how leadership practices in China differ from the West, what experts need to learn and unlearn to be effective in the Chinese context, and how Western ideas of empowerment and autonomy are perceived in China. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. Here's my conversation with Dr. Frank Gallo. Welcome to the Work Matters podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Frank Gallo. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you, Thomas. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So our topic today is what Western businesses can learn from China and from Chinese leaders. So maybe jumping right in, what are, in, in your view, are the differences between being a leader in the West versus being a leader in China? It's changing. Um, when I first got to China more than 20 years ago, uh, it was very, very different from the West. But over the over that time, a lot of the you know Western best practices have been incorporated into China, and then Chinese companies have put their own uh, flavor to it. So, in some ways, it's it's the business itself is quite similar. The differences are uh, more related to Chinese values versus Western values. Uh, one of the biggest ones is the issue of individualism versus collectivism. China is very collectivist. China, China, uh, in China, I'm not just talking about business, but generally speaking, if you're a citizen in China, the state comes first. And that's pretty much opposite of how it is in the West, certainly in America, in Germany, in France, and so on, you know, where, where individual rights are so important. So that, uh, I find that issue uh, a lot in business, and I can give you examples of how individualism versus collectivism shows up in business. What are some other differences at the macro level between Western culture and, 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 and Chinese business culture? Well, I think uh, it's, you know, very much based on Chinese values versus Western values. So... Um, China very much follows Confucianism. Now, that does, please understand, that does not mean that everybody in China and everybody who goes to work in China is a Confucianist. Not at all. However, just like 
you know, I was brought up in the U.S. to uh, believe in myself and to believe in individual rights and the importance of uh, human uh, human values. In China, there are a few values that are a little bit different from here in the U.S. or or in the West. Um, one of the biggest is harmony. Uh, it's very important in China that things are harmonized. Um, th there's a saying in Malaysia, it's uh, in, Jap in Japan as well as in China, about the protruding wall gets hammered down. And uh, that's certainly the opposite of how it is here in, in, uh, in the West where you want to be that protruding nail. You want to stand out. You want to be somebody special. But that could be seen as uh, uh, being rude or impolite if you do that too much. And that's actually one of the, one of the uh, I, I think you know, Thomas, that, that I'm a, an executive coach. And one of the biggest issues that I often face with Westerners when they're put in executive positions in China and I'm coaching them is their expectations that people will stand out when in fact that's anti-Confucianist. Now it's changing. I, I, I keep saying that and I want to I want to underscore everything that I say in this uh, in this interview that it is changing. China is Chinese business is becoming more and more like the West, but I don't see China changing any of its values. So the issue of harmony, the item I mentioned before about individualism versus collectivism, um, hierarchy, hierarchy is a big deal in Confucianism. Uh, so in the West, we tend to see ourselves more egalitarian. Uh, if you look at Scandinavia, a CEO will uh, drive to work on his bicycle. But you know, in China, for sure, the CEO is going to be driven by a driver in a Mercedes, black. You know, so it's, it's that kind of, uh, th those kinds of things don't really change. If, if you will indulge me, I'd like to tell you one story. When I first got to China in 2001, I was uh, going to be the China CEO for uh, a fairly large international uh, consulting firm. And uh, so they knew I was coming, and they had a fairly new location. And so they wanted to build an office for me. And they wanted to build this huge palace, you know, and I'm an American, and, you know, it's that's considered... I mean, there are people who do that, but it's not considered too cool to be so much different than the rest of the employees. Likewise, they wanted to get me this huge car, you know, like the like the Mercedes. And and being the the Westerner going to China, I had to worry about budget and profit and loss and so on. And so my first issue when I got to China was trying to diplomatically get my team to lower the accoutrements that they were offering me. And it was a little bit weird for everybody because they were they thought they would be, even though I was saying this, they thought that they would be uh, uh, losing face because they would 
their boss wouldn't be driving in the same uh, quality vehicle that a competitor's boss would be. When I show up at a client, they would like me to be in the right vehicle and so on. If somebody comes to the office, they'd like me to have a palatial office. So those kinds of things you learn when you go there. Uh, I think now, 2023, if, uh, if a Western executive goes to China, they've probably been well briefed and they know about these kinds of things. But when I went in 2001, you know, you had to figure that out on your own. So that was one of the many differences that I noticed in the beginning. So one of the topics that, you know, over the, especially over the course of the, the last two or three years was the pandemic, right? I think has just become this topic of, of uh, individual flexibility and empowerment, right? People want more autonomy. Uh, and I think, you know, the, especially the younger generations are very vocal right, about, um, about articulating that. Um, how does that sort of play out in a Chinese business context? Um, that, that concept of like empowering workers, right? Bringing, bringing them into like the, the design and the decision-making process. So um, you and I uh, discussed not too long ago this, this article that appeared in the uh, Harvard Business Review uh, entitled How Chinese Companies Are uh, Reinventing Management, something like that. And they, there's this uh, concept now in China called uh, digitally enhanced direct autonomy, D-E-D-A, a little odd translated into English. Now, that is a perfect example of a difference between the West and, and the East. Uh, the, the, the concept of that D-E-D-A is that you will use data and IT to substitute for the bureaucrats in your in your Western corporate. And so you'll you'll have access to that and you can become more autonomous by having access to those things. Well, it seems to be working and they, in that article they gave examples of Hiro and Alibaba and they were pretty successful. The teams were pretty successful. But they also point out, and it didn't surprise me, that it it, it in some ways, uh, when Western companies look to see if they could apply any of that to their Western company, it was difficult. Why? Because if you if you're relying on a, a database and on an IT system and on artificial intelligence to help you make decisions going forward, you've basically taken away the autonomy of the individual. And the autonomy of the individual is replaced by the autonomy of the database. It's amazing to me. You know, that article was really amazing because that is probably just, just that alone. If we didn't have anything else to talk about today, I think that alone points out a significant difference between China and the West and, and certainly Chinese business in the West. If you indulge me again, I want to tell you another personal story. Um, when I was in China, I, I've been in the U.S. for the last few years because of the uh, pandemic. And in fact, uh, as we're speaking in March, the uh, Chinese government just yesterday uh, restored the visas 
of guys like me. I had a 10-year visa, but it was suspended. So now I can go back, and I will be going back in, uh, in a month or so. Where I lived, I lived, my, my, uh, my work and home was in Guangzhou, which is in the south of China, not too far from Hong Kong. Not too far from my apartment is a mall, a shopping mall, just like any mall that you'd expect to see in, in, in the West. And in order to get to that mall from where I lived, you have to cross these very large streets, very large intersections maybe six to eight lanes. So it's, it's serious, you know, and you have to watch the light and be careful. And I have to, you have to cross twice to get there. Well, just as I was leaving, so this was three years ago, it was pre-COVID, they, they put up these huge screens on the corners and you could see people crossing the street. If I crossed against the light, or if I was breaking the law, my face popped up on the screen for all the world to see. And uh, in some cases, if I, if I were Chinese and, and I could be facially identified, they would even have my ID number and my name. Now, that's, that's an example of how China is using data to, I, I don't want to say control the society, but to manage to manage the society. And we see those kinds of things in, in China. Uh, Thomas, I, I've got a, a direct business story from a client of mine. Uh, this, this company is a very well-known Western company. It's a multinational company. And uh, the person I was coaching was uh, the head of the uh, customer service department for, for, for China. And so uh, what they were doing there, because of the pandemic, and everybody was working from home, they were using uh, AI data, uh, somehow uh, monitoring people's computers, because they were working from home. So now everybody was, everybody was monitored by this data system. Right, just like the guy who crosses the street against the red light and gets his picture put up, same thing was happening. And this is just just last just 2022. So then, this person uh, who I was working with was asked to. It was it was successful. So he was asked to introduce that uh, in America, even though he he worked in China. Oh, my God. I mean, you can imagine how that was uh, re received. So they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And the, so the, the primary way of managing employees in China tr was successful in China. They tried to apply it in, in America, and it was busted. No way. Couldn't do it. So I think those are, you know, some examples of how um, – autonomy is coming from someone other than the individual. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, even in, and you know, you and I, we both read the same article, right? And what I thought was interesting is that it, it really used like the market mechanism, right? To, to, to direct people and, and to use that like as, as a control mechanism. 
and and to your point, right, basically creates like a platform that that allows you know that that to be fairly frictionless, and um and it's interesting because you'd think normally that you know in the West, right, we'd be the more capitalist, market focused, right, uh, people here, but it turns out that that's like adopting right those kind of models. I think is incredibly hard in the United States, right? I think there's only like a few companies that really. So like went into the same direction as Hire, for example, did, right? Um, so I think it's, it's it's fascinating. Any any thoughts on kind of like like what, why why that is so so different? Uh, if you look across like the, the two different value systems, I think I think it uh, it's there's a couple of things. One is that generally speaking, Chinese workers who are terrific, by the way, you know, very hardworking long hours, uh, smart, ambitious, but rather compliant compared to the West. And that's, a, that's another one of those values you, that you learn in, uh, as a child. And then it's, it's very much reinforced in high school and even in college, where you pretty much revere the, the professor and the teacher and you uh, do what you're told. So what's interesting, um, when you think about empowerment in the U.S., I say to my employees, I'm an American, and I say, I want you to be empowered. I want you to be able to do uh, what you think is right. I want you to be an owner. I want you to uh, do that job as if this is your company. And I think, well, that's great. You know, that's the Western way of doing things. But that doesn't fly as well in China at first because people think, it's odd, you know, I mentioned before about the hierarchy, the Confucianist hierarchy. Why is my boss asking me to do things that maybe he should do or some other manager should do? That kind of difference between empowerment and this kind of digitally enhanced uh, data autonomy or something like that, uh, how, how that... Uh, uh, is really is really quite different, and I think it gets back to the very first thing we talked about in this call, in this in interview, was the um, individualism versus collectivism. Thomas, think about COVID. Think about COVID, and what the world went through, and think about the way China handled it versus the way, in 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 our case, we both live in the U.S. The way it was handled in the U.S. In China, the, the employees, the uh, people were very, very compliant. They lined up, they, they, they uh, lined up for testing almost every day. Uh, they had a, a smartphone system, and if it was either green or yellow or red, based on who you've been exposed to, there was very little freedom. Why was that accepted? Because the state has high value to a Chinese person. Doing something for the good of the country, for the good of our community, is very, very important. Now think about the U.S. Think about all the fights. Uh, it's still going on today with some political candidates talking about, you know, the fascism. So, yeah, so I, mean, I think these are, these are really good examples of how that then gets applied in business as well. Yeah, one of the things you also mentioned when we when we talked earlier, which I thought was really interesting, that that obviously there's not like just one type of Chinese companies, right? Uh, and and you were 
I think uh, uh, you, you pointed out that right that there's like multinationals, right? So Western companies that have a right, Chinese subsidiary, you have like traditional state-owned companies, right? Um, and then you also have these 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 uh, private Chinese companies, um, you know, Alibaba or you know um, some of these companies are, are probably good examples for that. And kind of like how do they differ, like in 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 how they do business and how they. Uh, how they how they go one of the things you've asked me before is what are the biggest differences you've seen in the in the boom china for 20 something years what are the biggest differences and i'd say that probably the biggest is the movement from the planned economy to the market economy in a planned economy beijing tells you the the, head, the central government tells you pretty much everything uh, about business, they, in the old days, when I even when I first got there, um, the government was telling employees, telling companies how many employees they could have, what the salary should be. You know, I was an HR consultant, so you could imagine how different that was because that was, you know, we were trying to teach the companies how to manage these things, and but those state-owned enterprises were being told from the central government what to do. So, as uh, as China has moved from a planned economy to a market economy, uh, the the multinationals rose up, and and the multinationals pretty much are Western firms who are there, most of them, and uh, they follow pretty much Western practices. So if you if you're consulting. Uh, or managing or leading in one of those companies, while you still have to be very sensitive to Chinese values, you pretty much follow Western best practice. Pretty much follow Western best practice. And there's there's examples like which we can talk about. There's examples of how you you do that blending. If you're a state-owned enterprise, it's really just the opposite. It's like it's like uh, the planned economy of, of before. Uh, that's changing, but if you th think about the big, the biggest state-owned enterprises in China are like the, they have a uh, one company that manages the whole electric grid for the company for the country, and then the airlines and the oil companies. And I know in my early days when when I used to do more consulting work in those kinds of companies. It was a struggle sometimes to get people to adapt what, what we, the consulting firm, thought were would be best practices for them. So there was a struggle there. Multinational, no problem. It was accepted right away. In between are these fantastic privately owned Chinese companies you, you mentioned, Hire, Alibaba, Huawei. Uh, Tencent, uh, ByteDance, which owns TikTok. And, and these companies are doing all kinds of uh, uh, blends of, of, the, of the two. Uh, I, I know there's a system that's called, uh, it's called in Chinese, which means 996. Nine in the morning to nine at night, six days a week. Multinationals don't do that. Uh, they couldn't get away with it. Um, 
because the, the people, you know, people in China would say, wait a minute, in, in, in America, they do eight to five. Why am I doing nine to nine? And they only work five days. So that doesn't work. But in these private companies, they do it. And um, they feel that's an advantage. And I think you, you could argue that it is. So I know it's, it's probably as a practice is, is maybe declining in China, right? But initially, uh, I think a lot of these multinationals, as they open up their local subsidiaries, right, sent right, Western managers over to, to manage those operations. And I know right, that part of your work, you're coaching people that come to China to do business in China, right, manage, uh, manage an operation there. Um, and, and so right, you have, you've seen probably a lot of things, right? But what are some of the... The, the issues that, that that trip people up doing business in China, right? They were successful in Europe. They were successful in the States. Now that they're in China, what what's that gets in the way of them being successful in that cultural context? What have you seen? And again, it goes back to that, the issue of Chinese values and being able to apply those. And I think uh, the, the, uh, executive who goes there, the successful exec from Europe or America who goes there and doesn't take into account those things, that's going to be a problem right away. But there are some other subtle things. Uh, directness versus indirectness. Uh, I've had a number of uh, German coaches, very direct. And they're often running into difficulties by being direct with their employees, being as good as they were in Germany. But in China, it was, it was frightening to some employees. And I've done it myself. Um, I think I may have mentioned to you one time that the word disappointment in English carries much more weight in China than I knew. So once I told an employee that I was disappointed in the way she did something, and she almost quit. She's a great employee, MBA, you know, smart as a whip and very loyal and very hardworking. But when I said I was disappointed, I just meant it as, you know, as you would in in the West. I didn't realize. So, so um, they have a concept in China called Zhongjianren, which means uh, middle person, middle person. So, so that, um, you know, I had a high level and I showed disappointment to this person down below. She, rather than quit, she went to somebody in the middle. And then that middle person came to me and said, oh, Frank, you know, I want you to know how so-and-so reacted. And I felt terrible. You know, I eventually... Uh, explain to her, you want to apologize? Not that I, I'm not against apologizing, but I felt it was a matter of both of us learning. So we talked about, about it and she stayed and everything was fine after that, but I learned a big lesson. So that's, that's another, that's one issue that expat, another issue that expats run into. Another one uh, is patriotism. I, I read a want ad in China, in China that was translated into English. It was one of these English newspapers in China. And they talked about they were looking for a CEO and they wanted the person to be Chinese and this and that and this experience and that experience. And finally, they said to be patriotic. 
And I, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. You know, I wouldn't expect to ever see that in the U.S., you know, that, that it's a requirement that you be patriotic. But that came up, that concept has come up a, a few times in my work. Uh, I remember one time I was speaking with a group of American managers. They weren't CEOs or C-level people, but they were, they were managers. And... Um, brought to my attention how uh, they had a conflict. It was, it was a conflict for them managing employees who seemed to take China over uh, the company. You know, is that, that kind of inbred patriotism? And it, it, isn't, it isn't like spying. It's just that China is the state. China comes first, which explains, you know, whenever I read a story about a, a Chinese executive or a Chinese uh, professor in MIT or Harvard, you know, who somehow gets busted for uh, giving some stuff to the Chinese government, I think about it and say, well, you know, yeah, it's according to U.S. law of spying, but according to Chinese culture, you want to you improve China. That's the most important thing to you. So I'm not taking a position on that. I'm just pointing out how that has a lot of cultural background besides uh, legal. And then I guess an, another one I would just add, uh, another thing that expat leaders sometimes run into is the issue of hierarchy. I've already talked about when I went there and, you know, how, how they wanted, how my team wanted to treat me. But, you know, little subtle things. If, if we walk into a room, into a meeting in New Jersey, and uh, when the meeting's over, people just get up and leave. In China, generally, the senior person leaves first. Nobody walks out ahead of them, and they follow that order. That's not 100%. Uh, so I don't want any Chinese purists to complain to you and say, oh, that doesn't happen. But it does. It doesn't happen 100% of the time, but it does. And if it doesn't, uh, it's, I think people are still aware of it. So you're a Westerner and you go to, um, uh, and, you're, and you're an exec and you, you have this meeting with your team and the meeting is over and nobody leaves until you do. Or vice versa, you're an engineer. You're not hot. You're not the top. And you walk out when the meeting's over. You run out before anybody else does. Those are considered rude, and they get in the way of comfortable relations in the company. It's a very different view of the world. And I mean, here I think in the West we have like this this notion that, or or at least like in some cases, right? The, there's this idea that you know, like you have these, right? entrepreneurial people at the bottom of the organization have all these great ideas, right? And so, right, our job is to really, um, right, in a servant leadership model, right, bring those ideas to fruition and create a, a platform for people to thrive, right? Um, and so we're putting, I guess, the individuals like a little bit on that, on that pedestal. And it's kind of like the polar opposite in China, it sounds like. So so it makes me think about, like, you know, how as an organization do you sort of tap into kind of like what the ideas that people have or, or um, yeah, how, how does that play out in, in, in the real world? For example, 
continuous improvement, right? How do you get right employees to really, you know, take ownership for this, bring the ideas to the table, make the processes or, you know, the way work gets done better. How does that play out in China? Again, if you keep in mind those three different types of company, and if we're talking about either the private Chinese company or the, the multinational company, I think it's quite similar. I think people can understand why we're doing something. And if you're, if you're a good exec and you do understand how something might impact a Chinese person versus the way it would be received in the West, then I think you can go ahead and do any of these best practices. But, uh, you know, there, there are uh, some examples uh, like I read about this uh, company that was, was in the diesel, diesel industry. And they went to China and they wanted to invest in diesel equipment. They, I think they wanted to invest $5 billion, some enormous amount of money. They just couldn't get approval from the government. They couldn't get approval. And then they changed their argument after months and months of negotiating. They changed their argument from, hey, come on, I'm giving you $5 billion. You can use it to hire people. And, you know, it's great for the economy. They changed it to, look, if you enhance your diesel operations in China, you are going to contribute to the environment. You're going to contribute to the energy efficiency of the country. Uh, it'll mean so many jobs and so on. In other words, if you if you put the the value the benefit to China in there, as opposed to the benefit to the you know to the company, it's it's a much more a much better argument. That's an example of how you. You blend, you blend the two. Uh, I remember a case where um, it, it doesn't happen so much now, but when I first got there, there was a lot of bribery. It's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I would call it bribery, but sometimes the Chinese would just call it gift giving. But I mean, we're not talking about giving somebody a, a bowl of food or mooncakes. We're talking about a, a color TV. Or I, I, I had in my early days uh, as an HR consultant, uh, somebody say to, to me, uh, if you can work out the compensation system so that I get a raise, I'll, I'll get, I don't know what he offered me, but he offered me some crazy bribe. Um, so that doesn't happen so much anymore, but it still was part of the culture of relationships, right? This Chinese culture that you may have heard the term guanxi, which is re mutual relationships. And you, you um, gift giving is very much a part of that. You know, on Chinese New Year's, everybody brings a gift. You give, you give these little red envelopes to kids with five women being there and you, you uh, give people mooncakes and you know it's it's very gift giving kind of society so all of a sudden you're telling your employees you can't do that so intellectually the employee can understand that but what they might not understand yet is how do i what do i do if a supplier offers me a bribe what do i do do i just 
cross my shoulder, my arms and say no, and then potentially offend them for not accepting their gift. So some, I remember this case where, where the company had to uh, introduce training for people in the uh, purchasing department to how to, uh, how to turn down these offers and, and, and meet corporate compliance. That's fascinating. So, so one other concept you mentioned when we were talking um, is the idea of customer sacrifice. Can you say a few things about that? <laughs> I wrote a book in, in 2008 called uh, Business Leadership in China. And in order to get the, the, information, the data for that, I interviewed 20 Chinese CEOs. I asked them a number of questions, and uh, one of them had to do with customers. And this one guy, a CEO of a fairly big Chinese company, said to me, I keep my telephone on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so any one of my customers knows that they can call me. And I thought, oh, that's an exaggeration. You know, this guy's a CEO. Son of a gun, when I mentioned this to uh, some of my team, they told me that they, I didn't even realize that they had their phones on 24 hours a day and that they were taking calls from clients at 11 o'clock at night, midnight. And I, I was struggling because I don't want my workers, my team to have to do that. On the other hand, I don't want people to violate Chinese custom. So we had to work out our own ground rules and what to tell clients, how to do it in a diplomatic way, uh, and, and so that people wouldn't lose face. But I remember this one time I had a, a woman who worked for me who was going to, um, she had an appointment to do something about it. She was applying for a PhD something about going and interviewing for the PhD. And this client knew that, but he wanted her to go 200 miles away, a flight, and be gone for a couple of days to go to attend a meeting. And she didn't know what to do. And she was, came to my office and she was cheerful. I called the client and tried to explain to him that this was very important for her. But uh, it, it, it didn't end well. You know, because it really was a, a violation of the customer sacrifice that many Chinese companies saw. I think that would be different. That was a still-owned enterprise. I think it would be different. Most multinationals follow the kind of customer relations that you're familiar with in the West. But in some of the state-owned enterprises, you can be prepared to do anything the client asks. That's really interesting. I think that's also something I took away in that HBR article that, that these right, Chinese entrepreneurial companies, the digitally enabled right, um, uh, uh, companies, I think also probably have in common this, like this relentless focus on the customer. Right? Maybe, right? Maybe the equivalent would be Amazon, right? who I guess has this aspiration of to be the most customer-focused company. But certainly it's like the average customer service experience in the West Right, does not really follow the same. Right, follow the same model. So I think that's interesting. 
again, I'd like to point to the difference between when I first got there and now. When I first got there in 2001, um, customer service in China was awful. It was terrible. Um, airlines, restaurants, hotels, people just, it wasn't that the people were not nice people. They just had no idea about the concept of customer service. Uh, I remember my one of my first Chinese teachers who was a, a little bit younger than me, but she was telling me about the 50s and the 60s in China. And you'd go to a restaurant and, and, and to get a waiter or a waitress to come to you, you'd have to yell, comrade, comrade, comrade. You had to be the, the, the loudest person to get them to come and provide service. Well, that has changed. And I would challenge you, Thomas, I don't know if you've, flying on uh, Air China or China Eastern Airlines, the, the service that you get on those airlines is just as good as Singapore or Emirates or some of the best airlines that we have in the, in the world. So they have made an enormous change in customer service. I mean, this is obviously like a difficult, or this might be a hard question, uh, but obviously China has changed a lot, right, from right a planned economy right 20 30 years ago to 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 where they are now it's just an economic powerhouse right uh, do you have like any any prediction as like where, where this will go and how this might evolve further well it's a it is a difficult question because uh because of what's going on right now in china and the the, the way china has become a bit of a pariah around around the world uh they're they've been losing some business uh i'm not sure how much they'd be willing to bend but i think if you talk to chinese people they're pretty they're still quite optimistic and uh i mean when i when i first got there uh, a lot of the chinese execs they looked up to me as a an american a western uh consultant with you know, with a PhD and a real high level stuff to them. And they listened to every word I said. But over the years, that's changed. And I think there's, an, there's a, a strong element of, if you will, nationalism. I talked about patriotism before, but nationalism, that China really can do these things better. So I think in the Chinese mindset, they're, they're seeing themselves as becoming the 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 business leader of the world. I don't know if that's going to happen, and and you can read you can read all opinions of that depending on whose whose book you you pick up. But I don't think they're going anywhere. You know, I don't think we're gonna we're, we're I don't think that it's going to be uh, uh, you know that they're going to be falling falling out of the sky. Remember uh, in the seventies how people were concerned about, people in the West were concerned about Japan and how Japan was growing and Japan was buying up all this property in the U.S. and so on. Well, that kind of fizzled out, didn't it? I mean, Japan is still an ally, but it's not the dynamo that it, people thought it was going to be. So I've read that that's what's going to happen in China. We'll see. Interesting. Wonderful. Uh, Frank, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show and and uh, wishing you all the best on your on your return to China, right? In uh, in a few weeks, and uh, yeah, thanks again for sharing your insights into 
you know, what Western businesses can learn from, from Chinese and Chinese leadership, and also right, some of the things to watch out for. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. I enjoyed our discussion, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Thanks, Frank. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.